I really don't want to say too much because I'm going to say it all over again. I'm good? Can I get my intro slide up there? Is that possible? If it's not possible, just say so. Yeah. I put together a way cool four-slide PowerPoint for you guys today. I spared no time for you. No, I'm just joking. Um, that's all I needed. So uh, introduction, here we go. Studying the book of Daniel, Daniel's broken up into two parts. The first six chapters are historical uh, accounts. The second six chapters are prophetic. So John stole my thunder. I was so excited to introduce it to the assembly today. We were doing the book of Daniel, and he kind of took my feet off my knees. But we will be doing the first six chapters from now to our spring conference. And then we're going to hand Larry Price all the prophetic books, uh, the <laughs> prophetic chapters. We did not do that on purpose. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it'd be nice to do all the prophetic part in one sitting for our weekend conference because uh, it just really helps pull everything together. So we're going to be looking at Daniel 1 today. Now we're going to be doing a lot of background historical lead up to where we end up now. So we're going to do a lot of reading through the Old Testament, a lot of prophets, um, a lot of accounts of the kings, uh, because it's super critical to understand the context of where we are in the book of Daniel, okay? So let's start by reading Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jer uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles of the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure, sorry, put in his treasure house the things from God. Let's open a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, we give you thanks for your word, for it is holy and it is true. Lord, I pray this morning as we open and read your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us, that it would reveal what you would have us to learn from it. For Lord, we know that the words written in this book are foolish to the world because they are blind to it. They cannot understand it. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit lives inside of us and can interpret these things for us so we can understand them. Lord, we pray that we would learn more about you, that we would grow to have a deeper appreciation of you, that we would love you more this morning. Please, Lord, keep me from error. And in all things, may you receive the honor and glory this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So background. We know we got King David, right? Uh, well, starting with King Saul, right? Then King David, then Solomon, right? We studied the kings. Jeez, uh, last spring, was it? This past year we studied the kings. Uh, then you have Solomon, right? And Solomon has a son. He's got a son. Come on, guys. Rehoboam, right? And Rehoboam and Jeroboam bash heads. There's a civil war. The nation divides, right? Ten tribes go to the north with Jeroboam. All right, that's called Israel. And then two tribes go to the south with Rehoboam, the rightful king, and they're called Judah, right? So we've got the north, ten tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. And they really don't get along. They, and once in a while, they, they, they work together, but most times they don't get along. Uh, it's a little civil war that happened. Uh, it's a very sad time in the nation of Israel. Now, over that period of time since they split, both kingdoms kind of go in a downward spiral. Uh, Israel never has a good king, we know. Uh, we looked into that. 
Judah has some good kings, some bad kings, some good kings, some bad kings, and it just does this spiral downhill, right? Now, over 100 years before Daniel chapter 1, Israel, the 10 northern tribes, had already been destroyed, taken captive by Assyria, right? Um, Many prophets went to Israel and preached and preached and preached to Israel, repent, change, you need to follow the ways of the Lord. Uh, you need to go back. You've abandoned him. And if you don't, you'll be destroyed. And sure enough, they didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't listen to the word of God. And God punished them. And the Assyrians came in, killed many, many people, and then scattered the, rem- the remnant, the leftovers, scattered them all over the world. A hundred, over 100 years later, right, during that period of time, Judah's not doing so good. They're going downhill. And prophets such as Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all go to Judah and preach to Judah on behalf of the Lord, saying, listen, change your heart, change your ways, repent. Destruction is coming because you've defamed the name of the Lord. You've abandoned him. You've gone after false gods. You've done many things that the Lord has asked you not to do. You've just forgotten him completely and you're making him look bad to the world and he is going to punish you if you do not change your ways so for over a hundred years four different prophets came to judah and preached and preached jeremiah being one of the key ones um and they too did not listen turn with me to jeremiah chapter 25 let's see what jeremiah actually told them in person Jeremiah 25 lines up pretty darn close with Daniel chapter 1. It's kind of like the final warning. <laughs> this is my last attempt to contact, or not to contact, my last attempt to tell you guys, listen, change your ways. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 1. We're going to read 11 verses here, okay? The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jeroboam, son of Josiah, the king of Judah, which is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. So, right, we just know that the first year of Nebuchadnezzar is when he came, as we just read in Daniel, and conquered Judah. This is the same time. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people, verse 2 of Judah, and to those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it to you again and again, but you have not listened. Guys, myself have been preaching this for 23 years, and you're not listening. Not picking me up, Ben? That better? Okay. Sorry. For 23 years, I have been preaching to you directly from the word of God, change your ways, and you still haven't listened. Verse 4. And although the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets to you again and again, you have not listened or paid attention. They said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord has given you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger 
with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. And you have provoked me with what your hands have made and what you have uh, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against Israel and against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of honor and scorn, an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, and the sounds of the millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God says directly, guys, don't be surprised when I come. Don't be surprised when Babylon comes. He tells them what king is coming. He tells them what nation is coming. And he tells them when he's coming. I'm coming now. You have not listened. Your time is up. It's time for judgment. Now, something interesting in here. What do we notice? Well, how long did they go into captivity? 70 years. Very clearly tells us. We'll talk about that in a second. Another thing I found this so interesting, and I don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time on it, but just quickly, what does it say here? My servant, I've got to find it in verse, verse 8. The Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to me and to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Is, is he a follower of Jehovah? Nope. And we find that we're going to study Nebuchadnezzar, right? Clearly, he is not a believer in Jehovah, does not follow the God of Israel. What does he say? He's my servant. Uh, one of the themes in the book of Daniel, and, and one of the key thoughts in the overarching plan of the book of Daniel, is to display how God, by his providence and power, controls and directs the history of the nations. God can use whomever he chooses in this world, believer or not, to conduct his will. Those in power in our nation right now, God can use them if he chooses to. Those coming to power, God, if he chooses to use them, he can use them in his sovereign will, whatever it may be, he can use them anywhere in the world. God has complete control over this universe. And there's nothing that phases him going, oh, I didn't see that coming. That, no, he knows it all. And he will choose to use Nebuchadnezzar. Even if it means harming his own people and to use them as, as a means of judgment. Now, he, God does have a plan for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to get into that now, all right? Because that's coming in a couple more chapters. Uh, but it's very interesting that God will use the leaders of the world, even if they are unbelievers, uh, for his glory. Slide two, Josh, if you get a chance. Now, he takes them, he comes in, he conquers, and he takes them over to, there we go, whoop, there's Jerusalem, up and over to Babylon. He takes them there for what? How long? We just read it. 70 years. 
Why 70 years? Where did that number come from? Now, I'm not going to tell you the definitive answer, but I'll tell you the answer that I am satisfied with. Okay? Uh, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Go way back. 2 Chronicles 36. Uh, this is a historical account of, again, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and taking uh, control of the nation of Judah, conquering Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 30, chapter 36, verse 20. All right, if you go up in verse 15, it says the fall of Jerusalem, right? This is the exact alignment all right, with Daniel chapter 1, but in verse 20, he carried into exile to Babylon the, rem the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, again, him being Nebuchadnezzar, they became servants to him, and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests, and all the time of its desolation in it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord that was spoken to Jeremiah. What did it say there? The land enjoyed its rest. What do you mean the land gets rest? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's actually kind of interesting. All right? If you go to, I'm not going to make a turn there, but if you go to Leviticus chapter 25, I'll just read it to you. Leviticus chapter 25, what's happening here, right? Moses is up on Mount Sinai. The people just came out of Egypt. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. We're going back hundreds and hundreds of years, right? They just came out of Egypt. Awesome time. They're free people. Now they're going to be going into the promised land. And... The Lord says this, the Lord said to Moses, Leviticus 25, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give to you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what it grows of itself or harvest the grapes of the unattended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and your female servants, and the hired worker and the temporary resident who live among you, as well as your livestock and the animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So for six years, you work the ground. You fertilize the ground. You, you, you do the hard, the hoeing, and the, the weeding, and the planting. You work the ground for six years. But on the seventh year, don't do a thing. That makes ab absolutely no sense farming, you know, man-wise. But to God, it was very important that they follow a year of rest for the land unto him. And what did he say? If you work the land for six years, and in the seventh year, you do nothing. You just follow my law. You just simply do what I'm asking you to do and not work. That land is going to produce so much food, you won't have to do any work. I'm going to take care of your every need. It's, it's a test of faith and trust. Just simply trust in me, and I'll provide for you everything you need that year that you don't plant anything, which, again, makes no sense human-wise, but God's trying to prove to his people that I can take care of you, and you don't need to do anything. When the kings came on the scene, What's the role of the king? King Saul, King David, Solomon. What are the roles of the king? Well, one, protect the nation. 
right? And to make sure that the word of the Lord, the Bible, is taught, right? Now, it wasn't his job to teach it, right? But it was his job to make sure that it did get taught, right? He was supposed to read it every day and night himself. I cannot find anywhere in Scripture from a time that a king stepped on a scene that the Sabbath year of rest for the land was ever done. I can't find it. Nowhere in Scripture is it recorded from King Saul, even King David, and King Solomon, and all the ones that follow, ever was the Sabbath year for the land ever done. Now, interesting. Um, I went back and I tried to do some fact-checking with dates and times. From when King Saul came on the scene to Daniel chapter 1, it's pretty much 490 years. 490 years. Now, again, it's hard to find the exact date when King Saul came on the scene because that was like thousands and thousands of years ago. So, you know, accurate accounts. But when I looked at it and I, took it, I went to a bunch of different sources, a bunch of different sources, and I compared dates, it's right in there, guys. It's really darn close to 490 years, plus or minus a few. So, assuming that the Lord is right here, he always is, 490 years is a multiple of what? Seven. How many sevens? Seventy. Oh my, that's just cool. Seventy times there was a period of Sabbath rest for the land, and they never did it. It really seems like for every year that you didn't do the Sabbath year of rest for the land, I'm going to make you spend that one year in exile. And that's what it said in Second Chronicles, right? The land will finally get its rest. It never got its rest, and now it will. For the 70 times that you did not do it, every one of those, I'm going to make you stay in exile. I, I'm not going to preach on that dogmatically, but it sure looks like a really strong connection there. And I'm, I'm satisfied with myself, because it's, it's interesting. The Lord, see, God is not mocked. God does not forget. God keeps really strong records. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. See, God records everything. Everything you and I do, he records, and he holds on to that. Now, fortunately for myself, all the things that I have done wrong in my life, I will not be held accountable to when the end of my life comes. I will not be judged based on those things. Why? Because my name is found in the book of life. And because my name is recorded in the book of life, I am going to heaven because the blood of Jesus Christ has covered my sins. Never to be remembered anymore. But for those who do not believe, everything that they have ever done wrong will be brought back. And they will be held accountable for everything they've ever done. God has a great memory, great records. He is not mocked. You will not fool him. You will not sweep things under the rug and say, guess you didn't see that, God. No, it doesn't work like that. And that's how we see it right here in Daniel. God did not forget what his people had done. 
He even kept track of how many times they didn't follow his one little thing of the Sabbath year of rest for the land. Obviously, it was a pretty big thing for him, wasn't it? Now, what's God's end game? Takes his people, he disciplines them, punishes them for the things that they've done wrong. He says, for 70 years, you'll be in exile. Then what? what? What's the end game looking after the book of Daniel? What's to come? For the 70 years, what's God's end game for his nation? Turn with me to Jeremiah 29. I'm trying to get a cohesive picture of what's going on, what God has said to the people, why is God doing what he's doing. All right, And we haven't really even touched yet the actual book of Daniel. I'm glad I only got six verses because I have so much stuff to go over. There's no way for me to cover it all. Uh, Daniel chapter 29, and we're going to read verse 4 to 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who is he talking to? He's talking to Daniel, the people with Daniel right now who are being carried into exile. This is what God is saying to those exact people. Okay? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and sorry, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams. Uh, sorry, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They have prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope for a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I carried you into exile. These people are going through a really hard time right now. Their friends and families have been murdered and killed. And the remnant that has been left, the few people left, have been carried off to this foreign nation. You read through Jeremiah, it's, it's depressing. It, it's hard to grasp. These people are in like the hardest situation of their lives right now. And right at the end of the book of Jeremiah here, towards the end of the book, just as they're being carried back, God wants to say this to them. I have not forgotten you. I have a plan. And what is that plan? That plan is to prosper you. I, I love this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
That was not, that is the verse that we see all over Christian, you know, t-shirts and stuff like that. Like, that's one of the key themes that Christians throw around all today. Listen, guys, I'm going to be very careful with that. That section was not written for you and me. Okay? Do not take it out of context. Do not go around quoting that this is a verse for you. This verse is not for us today. This verse is for the Israelites who are now in captivity. Now, certainly some of the themes in there are great themes. And certainly we know that the Lord God has plans for us. We know that he wants us, all right, to do well. But not necessarily do well in earthly terms, to do well in the kingdom terms, right? We have to be very careful here, all right? Don't take verses out of Scripture, out of context, and apply them to your life as like your theme verse. All right, just be careful with that. God says, listen, you're going into exile. You're going to be there for 70 years. Get comfortable. Get a home. Get a job. Settle down. You're going to be there a while. 70 years is a long time. You think about it, my parents are low 60s. If my parents were the first generation into Babylon, they had kids. So they, had, they lived their life, had a job, going to retirement. They had kids. Me. Now I'm living in Babylon. Born in Babylon, living in Babylon. Guess what? I now have my kids. And we still have almost another 10 years to go. My daughter, technically, in these times, could be married and having children before they get out. You're going to be there a while, guys. Get comfortable. Try and make the best of it. Marry. Settle down. You're going to be here a while. But I'm not going to forget you. And what does it say? This is, this is very interesting, too. Verse 7. A little side tangent. Verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Wow. You're going to a foreign land of people you don't know, probably people you very much hate because they just came and killed all of you, right? Pray for them. Be symbols and models of peace in that land. I, I don't know about you. I'm a foreigner in this land. Not just because I'm Canadian. All right. <laughs> all right. We're all foreigners here on earth, aren't we? This is not our home. We're only here for 100, maybe 100 years. We're going to glory. We're going home. This is not our home. We are foreigners in this land. While we are here, it is good to pray for our land. It is good to pray for our government. It is good for us to be symbols of peace, to pray for peace. That is a good thing. It is a good thing. All right, now let's go to Daniel. Now we got some background. We got the picture of what's going on in the onset of Daniel chapter 1. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has come in. He has destroyed Jerusalem. Destroyed it, knocked down all its walls, destroyed the temple. He has killed hundreds of thousands of people. And everybody who is left is now being taken back to Babylon. All right, let's read verse 3 
through six, three through seven. Okay. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to serve and enter the king's service. Among these were some of Judah, sorry, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, <laughs> oh, can't, Mishael, <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, there we go, to Azariah, Abednego. I had to say them all together, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I got to say them as one fluid thing you learned in, in, in Sunday school, right? So, what happens here? God takes, sorry, not God, King Nebuchadnezzar tells his chief official, who's actually a chief eunuch, uh, we'll get into that in a minute, uh, chief eunuch, and says, listen, go find some of the best of the best, the cream of the crop, royal blood, people of royal blood, probably ages 14 to 19, those who are maturing, so you can see their shape, you can see their form, but who are also apt to quick learning, so they're still young enough that we can train them. And I want you to put them through a brainwashing, they didn't call it that, but I want you to put them through three years of brainwashing to remove their old culture, so that when they come into my service, they know our ways, they know our language, they know our gods, and they will be fit for my service then. Daniel happens to be one of these people. Daniel, again, is probably a teenager. And he's with three other friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if they were friends, but they are friends now. Okay? And together, they enter this king's three-year brainwashing plan. Now, what happens to them while they're in this three-year brainwashing plan? The plan is to denaturalize them, right? Well, first, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You're a teenage boy. And we know from the, when we study the book of Daniel, uh, he's a pretty righteous person. He probably hasn't done much wrong. He actually really loves the Lord. His parents have probably been murdered. All his family has been murdered. And they spared him because they thought that he'd be useful. They bring him back. And it's now their plan to wipe his memory of anything about Jehovah. And they're first going to turn him into a eunuch. I don't know if you know much about that, but they're going to castrate him. Talk about demasculating someone. Ever taking away their drive and ambition in life, they just ripped it all out. Like, that's hard. I don't really want to dwell on it much more. Um, there's a big time of healing now that he has to go through. He just went, family's been murdered, been castrated, and 
He's living in a foreign land. Is any of this his fault? Did he do anything wrong? Is the Lord punishing Daniel directly? Well, it would hard, be hard to say that um, because, oh, where's my verse? There we go, Isaiah 39. I'll just read it real quick. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah, again, one of the prophets, says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Almighty Lord. The time will surely come where everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Again, Hezekiah was one of the kings, right? So this is, again, just a little time before Daniel is actually taken away. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It was prophesied that the royal flesh and blood would be taken back to Babylon and be made a disgrace to everybody. Look at what we have done to you and your God. And we're going to take away your manhood for it. Was it Daniel's fault that this happened to him? Nope, it was his father's fault because he's in the royal kingdom, right? It's his father's fault and his grandfather's fault and his great-great-grandfather's fault. All the evil kings before him that refused to follow the Lord Almighty caused Daniel to be in this position. Ouch. Not his fault. Can you think of anyone else in Scripture who it wasn't their fault but finds themselves in a really rough spot? I, I don't know, but there's certainly definitely Joseph that pops to mind, right? It wasn't Joseph's fault that he was put in a rough position. Now, did God have a plan for that? He most certainly did. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to tell you the whole story about Daniel, but you probably know. God's got a plan. God has a plan. There are things that may come in your life that are uncomfortable for you. Daniel's in a very uncomfortable position. Physically, he's in a comfortable position, right? God has a plan. If you find yourself in an uncomfortable position, and it's not because of any evil thing or wrong thing that you have done, God probably has a plan somewhere. Because he always does. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? So, Daniel, family's been murdered, taken off hundreds of miles into this new land. He's become a eunuch. What else happens? Well, He's thrown into, well, his name's been changed. Ed, slide three. His name's been changed. <laughs> his name has been changed. Why did they change his names? Well, it's been, I was having a really hard time uh, getting the exact definitions of their names. Uh, many commentators, commentators, you know, they don't argue about the names. They're all pretty similar. But I took some of the most common uh, definitions. All right, you got Daniel. God is my judge. What did he change his name to? Belshazzar. Bel's prince, the God Bel favored. Hananiah, beloved of the Lord. Right, beloved of Jehovah, the God of Israel, right? I am loved by the God of Israel. What did he change his name to? Illuminated by the sun God. They take away the Jehovah part and say that you're now inspired by our God, the sun God. Your God obviously doesn't matter because your God just fails you. You all just got killed. 
we just wiped you out, we just conquered you, your God is a weak God, we're going to replace it with our fun God. All right? Mishael, who is as God? Who is like God? Right? No one, right? Well, obviously your God's a pretty weak God. Who is like your God? Our God's better than your God. We're going to replace you with who is like Venus. And Azariah, the Lord is my help. No, he's not really your help. We're going to take that out and replace you with the servant of Nagel. What are they doing here? They're trying to remove the memory of Jehovah, the one true God. They're trying to remove that from their memory by first starting with their names. Their names remind them daily of who their one true God is. We've got to get rid of that. So they change the names. All right? What else did they do? They put them in a three-year educational plan. We're going to train them in our ways and our culture and our language. All right? So they're one of us. All right? They assimilate them to who we are. I knew that when I moved to Canada. I told you I was Canadian. I'm dual citizen for those of you who knew. When I moved to Canada, I had to go to school, right? I was, I was a kid. I was not allowed to go to English school. I had to go to French school. There were English schools, but as a foreigner, I'm not allowed to go to those schools because they want me to become one of them. And I had to go to French school to learn the culture and learn the language, language to learn the language. I, I, need, I need to drink really bad. <laughs> Before you sit there. To learn the language of the French. This is what Daniel's going through. And then, on top of that, they changed their diet. Now, I don't want to steal James' thunder for next week. But they changed his diet and started feeding him food that he has never eaten before. And food that was forbidden back in Israel. Again, I'm not going to steal James' thunder because that's next week. All right? But what do we see here? The big picture is Nebuchadnezzar is trying to... Oh, thank you, Ed. Chuck it. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to remove every bit of memory and training about Jehovah. I don't know about you, but all around me, the world and what I see has always been trying to remove God from our minds, from our culture. I mean, we, we know this very clearly, just here in America, right? They have removed God and prayer and the Bible from schools. They actually teach against it now in our curriculum, both in high school, high, uh, well, grade school, and even in co collegiate level, all right? It's, they removed it from our education, and actually they teach against it now. Even in our holidays, right? Christmas and Easter are not about God anymore in the in, here in America. Now, maybe here in our assembly it is, because that's, you know, what it's about. But when you go around, you go around town, God is not in Christmas anymore, and God is not in Easter anymore, which is what it's about, right? It's about the Lord Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. That is gone from the picture. In our government and the policies, you know, just last year in 2019, okay, two years ago now, in 2019, there was a bill in the House, fortunately didn't pass, but the bill had a lot of support, and the bill said this, we want to remove the so help me clause, so help me God clause. When you go to take an oath, you put your hand in the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. 
the bill was there to remove that part. Fortunately, it didn't pass, but it had a lot of support. Um, just this past year, there were more bills brought up, and uh, they were backed by the hum American Humanist Association. Guess what their theme is on their slogan on their front page of their website? It is good without God. And they have support. I, I don't, don't want to get political at all today. I really don't. <laughs> but there is a group of politicians, and they call themselves the Secular Democrats of America Political Action Committee. And they have a bill that they're trying to have raised, and they're trying to raise more again. And it's, they want to remove In God We Trust from our money. They want to remove the, the theme, the slogan that we use, In God and Country, For God and Country. And they want to remove God out of our national pledge. They want to take God out of America, out of our culture, out of our way of life. Out of, They just want to remove everything that has to do with God. Especially if it's about the Bible and Jesus, right? Other gods are okay. Just not the one true God. It's all around us, guys. We see in our laws, in our land, uh, we would rather have uh, abortion and gay marriages. Like, it's, it's everywhere. The world wants to remove faith. They, well, not faith. They want to remove the one true God from everything. Do you recognize that? Do you see that in your workplace? I know in my workplace, it is forbidden to talk about God in the future. Forbidden doesn't mean stops me, but it is not allowed. It's heavily frowned upon. See, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to you and me, it is the power of salvation, right? It is foolishness to the world. This Bible, God himself, is foolishness. The fact that there's a higher being that loves you, foolishness. The world wants to remove it. Satan wants the thought of God gone, eliminated from this world. We are to be people who are ripe and who live by faith. We must walk by faith. We must, must be part of our every day. Our core must be founded upon Jesus Christ and nothing less. See, the world can remove God from our culture, but they can't remove God from our hearts. I'm going to finish with a quote. Go to my last slide there. Again, I don't want to steal James's thunder because he's really going to get into the character of Daniel next week. He's really going to get into how Daniel is a righteous uh, person who cares more about what God thinks than other people. Uh, but I found this quote while I was reading um, by Lehman Strauss. It says this, See, the king could change Daniel's name, but not his nature. He could change his culture, but not his character. He could change his meals, but not his morals. He could change his home, but not his honesty. They could change his environment, but not his ethics. The world around you can try to change who you are, change your environment, change your work, change your education, change anything they want. They should not be able to change your character and who you are as a person in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a king's kid. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Holy Spirit lives inside you. That's awesome. And that should control everything about you. What you think, what you see, what you say, how you act, how you react, your thought processes, your words, should be so different from the world that it doesn't even make sense to them. I really just want to leave you with this thought. I know next week James is going to do an awesome job picking up on this. So let's close in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks that your name is great. Uh, we give you thanks for this account of Daniel. Lord, I pray that as we look into this series that you will teach us about your faithfulness to the nation of Israel, that you will teach us about your providence and how you control the destiny of this world, you control the leadership, that you are sovereign over all things, and that you are sovereign even in our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would let us reign in our hearts and our minds, that you would take control of us, that we will allow you to use us for whatever your kingdom needs. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see it prosper here on earth. We want to see souls saved. Lord, we pray that as the world, through the power of Satan, tries to remove you from everything, we pray that we would be a beacon of light that shines and says, no, life is not good without God. Life is awesome with God. May the world see that in us. Lord, we give you thanks, and we trust these things in your name. Amen.